Nick vai olhar o presidencialismo de coalizão na África. Uma primeira olhada para Benin, Quênia e Malawi, três países na, na África. Nick leciona sobre estudos africanos e é Hugh Price Fellow em estudos africanos em uh, Je uh, Jesus College at the University of Oxford. Atualmente, ele é editor e colaborador de African Affairs e já publicou em periódicos como Democratization, African Affairs and Journal of Democracy. Por favor, Nick. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here today. Um, you'll be happy to know, I think, that this will be the last of the English presentations. And this being a legislature, when you leave, we're going to ask you to vote on who has the best English accent. <laughs> so going last, just remember what you heard last. That's all I'm saying. It's a great honor today to be able to talk to you about Africa, and I'm particularly excited to be here because I know that especially during the Lula presidency, ties between Brazil and Africa became increasingly important, both to you here in Brazil and also in Africa. I was very lucky a couple of years ago to come here to actually speak uh, to some of your uh, representatives and your diplomats at the Institute Rio Branco about Africa-Brazilia relations. So it's excellent to be able to come back here and to talk a little bit to you about how presidents and executives actually work in the African context. So my aim today is going to be to do two things. One is to tell you a little bit about how African presidents try and manage their parliaments. What do they do? And the second is to actually see if the way that things work in Brazil and the way that you think about presidents and legislatures in Brazil makes sense in Africa. Is it a radically different system or is it actually much more similar to what you see here than you would think? So this is coalitional presidentialism goes, goes to Africa. One of the first things I need to say is that sadly not very much literature when it comes to African parliaments. It's very instructive to look at the incredible volume of work that's done for example, on the Brazilian parliament, which we think must now be one of the most studied presidencies and uh, legislatures in the world, and compare that to Africa. In the African context, we have very little research done by serious academics. I've managed to do an exhaustive search of the internet, and we've so far found only two books that are actually analysis of African parliaments. Both of those are edited collections. So the evidence base, the knowledge of what we have on African parliaments is very, very limited compared to the incredible amount of research that goes on here. And one reason for that is that most people assume that parliaments in Africa don't matter. They think the legislature is a waste of space. They think it's a rubber stamp. They simply confirm what the executive wants they have no capacity of their own, no capacity to modify legislation or to initiate legislation, so why would we bother studying them? Instead, we study corruption, patronage, terms like that. So one of the things that we want to do today is to say, is this neglect actually a problem? Do we actually find that in the African case, parliaments are much more significant, legislatures are much more important than we've actually thought so far? Is African political science missing something by ignoring this literature and focusing so little on this institution of horizontal accountability? 
And what we find, just to preview the survey and the findings from the African case, is actually we find that in many ways African legislatures think about coalitional presidentialism the same way that people do here in Brasilia. They don't call it the same thing. They've never heard of the term coalitional presidentialism. It's a new thing that we need to explain when we go there and we talk to political scientists or researchers or MPs. They don't call it the same thing. But when you explain it to them, they say, oh, yeah, we have that. That's what we do. We form coalitions. We bargain. The president has these different tools. He tries to use them to get us to support him. It's a bargaining process. So the interesting thing is that actually for all of our assumptions about African parliaments, it turns out that they're much more similar to what we see here in Latin America. And our African MPs are much more cynical in some ways about the impact of coalitional politics. In fact, MPs from Malawi turn out to be quite similar to MPs from Brazil in their attitudes towards coalitional presidentialism. They see that it's a necessary evil, they think that it's been quite good when it comes to political stability, but they're very critical of some of the impacts of coalitional presidentialism when it comes to the strength of the opposition, when it comes to the quality of accountability, and so on. So it's interesting to me that with this continent that I would have thought was so different actually has some interesting findings that are quite similar. So I'm going to talk to you today about three cases, Benin, Kenya, and Malawi. And I know that many people here may be not very familiar with these countries, so I'm going to start by just telling you a little bit about them and a little bit about why we selected them to be in our study. So there are three key reasons here. The first is that these are all clear, classic cases of coalitional presidentialism. In all of these countries, presidents have often struggled to win a majority of seats in the legislature. And that's an interesting thing. The sort of media perception of Africa would be a continent in which presidents win dominant electoral victories and then manage like princes. And yet we actually see many presidents securing a very small percentage of the seats in Parliament. And one reason for this is that in many countries where we see high levels of ethnic politics, so we see ethnic communities lining up behind their leaders and voting as blocs, in many of those countries the ethnic groups are all quite small. So in very, very few African countries would you find an ethnic group that's big enough to be a majority of the population. And what that means is that if a president is drawing support from one group, they're very likely to be a minority in the parliament rather than a majority. So these are all three good cases of coalitional presidentialism. We pick these also, and this is true for all of our cases, all of our cases are partly free, according to the Freedom House score. So Freedom House ranks all of the countries in the world in terms of how free they are from unfree to free. And we exclude all cases from our analysis if they're not counted as being at least partly free. And the reason we do that is that we want to know that presidents actually have to follow the rules to a certain extent, that they have to bargain with their legislatures, that they can't just rule through coercion. So we exclude authoritarian states. These are all relatively democratic states. The third reason we pick these three is because they have a common history. And one of the things we wanted in Africa was to be able to compare countries with a relatively similar colonial history and post-colonial history so that we're not comparing countries with radically different experiences. So these three countries all have a long history of legislative politics. In the post-colonial period, in all three countries, presidents established one-party states. 
and one of the distinctive features of the one-party state in the African context is that it maintained elections. So individual local citizens were able to go and vote for who would represent them as MPs as long as everybody who stood stood on the party label. So you had competitive elections but within the party for MPs that would go and sit in the legislature. And those MPs would then sit under the legislature as the constitution stipulated. So you would have competitive legislative politics. So although in all three countries the power of the parliament was significantly downgraded in the 60s, 70s and 80s, the legislature continued to exist and MPs have a good understanding of how the legislature works. So these are three good cases for us because we have a good history, a similar history of legislative politics. Now one thing I just wanted to show you very quickly is what we call the index of coalitional necessity. And this will come up again, so I'll just briefly explain it. What we do here is we simply look at how many seats does the president have in the lower house of the parliament. So that's the first thing. And then we look at how many parties there are in the lower house. So how many parties there are gives us a sense of how fragmented the legislature is. How many different parties there are. How small the little parties are. How difficult it may be to knit those parties together to form a coalition. And how many seats the low president has tells us about what a difficult position they have in terms of forming a coalition. Obviously, presidents with less seats need to bring in more coalition partners to get to 50%. And what you can see is that we then convert that to an index that runs from 0 to 100. So 0 is a president who has all of the seats in parliament for his own party and doesn't need any other parties. And 100 is a president who's completely reliant on other parties to form his coalition. What you can see is that, you may not be surprised, Brazil is right at the top. Brazil is the country with the highest level of coalition or necessity of any country in our entire sample. So in this country, presidents are particularly reliant on coalitions. My cases are at the bottom. So my presidents still need to form coalitions, but they need to form coalitions much less than their Brazilian counterparts. They're in, in other words, another way of putting this would be that as far as the legislature goes, they're in a stronger position because they have more seats and the legislature is less fragmented. I'm just showing you this graph because it just illustrates what I was just saying about the level of democracy. So on this graph, higher scores down here, 14 and 12, indicate an authoritarian state and 0 and 2 indicate a fully democratic state. And what you can see is that in all three cases, following the reintroduction of multi-party elections in the early 1990s, they moved into the middle of the graph. In other words, they became states that are partly free. And that means that citizens have the right to vote in elections, it means that human rights are not systematically violated, and it means that presidents have to follow the rule of law. But it also means, and this is important to keep in mind, that, of course, democracy is not consolidated in these countries. These are countries in which democracy is only just getting off the ground. So we're seeing a process of democratic consolidation. And one of the things that we're interested in, and you in Brazil have great knowledge of, is how coalitional presidentialism shapes the process of democratization over time. Does it make democratization more likely because it delivers political stability? Or does it make it less likely because it enables the president to co-opt political parties and it reduces the competition between parties in the executive. 
One final table before I start to actually tell you a bit about our results from Africa. It's just interesting to note how many countries in Africa actually rely on coalitions in the legislature in order to actually govern. So if you can see on the left, I have a scale of presidential power within the legislature. I start with minority governments, so those are presidents who don't have a majority of seats and don't try and form a coalition. They try and govern simply as minority presidents. Then coalition governments, much like here in Brazil. Then single-party plurality, which is when one party secures over 50% of the vote on its own. And then dominant party government. That's where one party wins over two-thirds of the seats on its own. A classic case there would be a country like South Africa, where the African National Congress, the party of Nelson Mandela, has won over two-thirds of the seats in every election since the return to multi-party politics in 1994. What you can see is that actually the most common category, the most popular category, is coalition government. More African countries have coalition governments than have dominant party government. That was a figure that surprised me when we actually ran the numbers. So, I'm going to start by trying to talk a little bit about some of the differences that we might think about between our Latin American cases and our African cases. And one of the key factors that might be a little bit different is the role of ideology. In much of the literature that's been written so far on Brazil, people have talked about trade-offs. If you're a Brazilian president and you want to form a coalition, you have to decide, do you want a really big cabinet? gives you a lot of weight, a lot of power, but it has a lot of ideological diversity, so it may be harder to get the cabinet to agree on a common policy or get a consensus. Or do you want a smaller cabinet that might be easier to get to a consensus point on a particular issue, but actually involves less MPs, allows you to control the legislature less well? Our MPs in Africa say this trade-off doesn't apply because ideology doesn't matter to them. You don't have an ideological discussion. You don't have an ideological debate over policy. So you don't have to worry about how big your, parliament should, your cabinet should be. You should just have the biggest cabinet possible because you can get all of these guys to sign up and agree with you. So the trade-off of ideological cohesion versus size doesn't work here. And this is what this MP from Benin told us. He says, coalitions in Benin often lasted for as long as the different actors find their interests satisfied. And here he means their personal interests satisfied rather than a party interest satisfied. If they don't have interests, they leave. Coalitions are not ideological. I say they are a grouping of interests. They aren't, in some ways, even coalitions. So what he's telling us is that actually what our president should be doing in Africa is not worrying about the size of the cabinet because it doesn't bring any costs to the president to have a bigger cabinet. And what we see, and Tim will show you this later, Professor Power, in some of his slides, is that that's reflected in what people think African presidents should do. So our African MPs say that if they were president, they would go for a coalition size, a cabinet size, of at least 60% of the seats. And that's the highest of all of our cases, bar Brazil. So our African MPs and our Brazilian MPs have something in common. They want 60%. 60 is the magic number. Okay, so which tools and strategies do African presidents use? Do they use similar tools and strategies to presidents here in Brazil? We actually find that they do. One of the things that we assume in the project 
is that if they can, presidents are going to use two particular strategies or tools more than others. And these tools and strategies that we think they should like to use more are the agenda tools, so their legislative power, but also their partisan power, their power over their own party. And the reason we think they should use these more than the other strategies is that they cost less. If the Constitution gives you powers in the legislature and you can use that to make sure that the coalition stays together and you win votes, then why would you use, for example, cabinet management and give out cabinet seats, which is a high cost to you, when you can use this tool, which is a low cost? Similarly, we think that the president should be able to control his own party more than he can control other parties, and so it should cost him less to use this power than to use other powers. So I wanted to see, does that work in Africa? Do we see evidence of a similar thing? Do we see African presidents trying to use these tools more than the others? And the flip side of that idea would be that when those particular powers are low, we see presidents relying much more on the other tools as a way of compensating for their weakness on those points. So what do we see? I'm going to start with the partisan powers. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how these three cases, Benin, Kenya, and Malawi, vary when it comes to the power of the president. In all three of these countries, presidents have an awful lot of power over their own parties. In the African context, we're in a situation where parties have almost no funding. There's no state funding for parties, and most people who support parties are too poor to be able to pay for the party themselves through membership. So what you see is that most of the parties are dependent financially on the party leader. And of course, as soon as you have a party that's dependent on its leader for its finances, it becomes very hard for people to hold the leader accountable. It effectively becomes his own party. So in all three cases, presidents or leaders can get their way within their own parties. But because their parties had different levels of success at the election, what this meant for them in practice was very different. So in Malawi, President Malusi, who was the president immediately after the return to multi-party politics, he won 85 of 177 seats. So he had 48% of the parliament. So his ability to control his party and get his MPs to vote the same way every time was very influential because it gave him almost half of the parliament. Not quite half the parliament he needed to win votes, but almost half. Whereas in Benin and Kenya, presidents struggled to win seats for their parties, and so they were in a much weaker position. Just to take the example of Kenya, President Kibaki in Kenya, who was the president for the last uh, two terms, the last 10 years, only won 17% of the seats in 2002. So he could control his own party completely, but it didn't do him very much good because it only gave him 15% of the legislature. So we see quite a lot of variation when it comes to the actual power of these presidents in terms of their party and the influence of their party. What about the agenda powers? What about the legislative powers of the president? How do, what do we see there? Again, we see considerable variation. And one of the things that's really interesting that comes out of our work is that actually African parliaments function very differently from each other. 
instead of the idea that all of these parliaments are rubber stamps that simply do whatever presidents want, we some, some parliaments, we see some parliaments that are working very effectively, checking the president, acting as a bulwark against authoritarianism, promoting accountability, and we see some parliaments in which the legislature is doing very little when it comes to accountability. So one of the messages here is there's a lot of variation in the African context. What do we see when it comes to legislative powers? Again, we see considerable variation. So presidents in Benin simply don't have some of the powers that presidents in Malawi and Kenya and presidents here in Brazil have. They lack, for example, some of the powers to curtail legislation, to speed up the legislative process, and they lack the power to rule through, dec to rule through decree. As a result, they're in a significantly weaker position in terms of their legislative strengths and their basic legislative powers than the other cases. It's also true... Thank you. It's also true that they face stronger parliaments. I don't know if you've seen this, but you may be very interested if not. There's something called the Parliamentary Powers Index. And what the Parliamentary Powers Index does is it ranks every parliament in the world according to how powerful it is. And it measures the power of the parliament by 32 different tasks that parliaments may or may not be able to do under the Constitution. So it basically goes through and it counts the different powers that parliaments have. Now, there's a big weakness with the Parliamentary Powers Index, and the weakness is that it counts each of the tools equal. So it assumes that each of the different powers are equally important to each other. And you could think immediately that some of these powers, like the power to impeach a president, are probably more significant than other powers, such as the power to decide how the offices of the legislature should be organized. So it's a problematic index in that you don't necessarily know that these powers are equally important. But what it does give us is a sense of the varying powers of legislatures all over the world. And one of the things you can see here, hopefully, is that in Benin, the parliament is significantly stronger. So the Parliamentary Powers Index runs from zero to one. Zero is the weakest power parliament with no power. One is the strongest parliament with the highest power. And you can see here that Benin is significantly stronger than Kenya and Malawi. And what this means is that presidents in Benin, Benin are significantly more constrained. They can do significantly less than the presidents in the other countries when it comes to dominating the legislature through the powers that they've been given by the Constitution. So what we have here is a situation in which our presidents in Benin both have less partisan power and they have less legislative power. So our prediction now would be that presidents in a country like Malawi that have strong legislative powers and strong partisan powers will try and give out as few cabinet seats as possible. They don't want to incur the costs of giving seats to other parties. They want to keep them for their own party. And they don't want to give out budgetary concessions to other parties. They want to keep it for themselves. Because they have significant power, they don't need to make those compromises. But in the case of Kenya... Uh, and Benin, we should expect to see presidents having being forced to bargain more. They don't want to appoint more cabinet members, but they have to because they're in such a weak position. They don't want to make concessions on the budget, but they have to because they're in such a weak position. Is that what we see? Yes. We see a very similar pattern here to what we would see if we looked at a trio of Latin American cases, and you'll hear this later in Professor Power's talk. 
So in the case of Malawi, for example, President Malusi never offers his coalition partner, called AFORD, the Forum for the Restoration of Democracy, he never offers them more than eight cabinet positions in the entire two terms there together. Actually, at some points, it falls as low as four or three cabinet positions. So he offers them a tiny, tiny incentive to support his party, but a very small one. He preserves almost all of the ministries and all of the most important ministries for his own party, to keep his own party happy. What do we see in Kenya? A radically different situation. The president's party in Kenya is so weak within the legislature that it actually has a minority of seats within the cabinet. So President Kibaki appoints 10 of his Democratic Party to the cabinet, which is only 38% of the total cabinet. He actually appoints a majority of other parties in order to be able to build sufficient legislative support. So what we see is very different presidents under very different conditions using the presidential toolbox in the way that we would expect to see them doing it here in Latin America. And this is what we mean when we say that the tools are imperfectly substitutable. We mean that when a president doesn't have as much partisan power, he can substitute that for using cabinet management. But that brings a cost to him, and the cost is he has to incorporate other parties, cabinet ministers, and all that that implies for his ability to control the cabinet and his ability to control patronage and the distribution of seats. So what does this all mean when it comes to the reasons why parties join coalitions. Does all of this mean that actually MPs in these different countries have completely different understandings of how coalitional presidentialism work? We would expect that it should. Now, if my argument's right, if this is actually a genuine difference between these countries, it should be reflected in the way that MPs talk about their own parliaments. And we see that it is. So one of the questions we ask people in the questionnaire is, why did your party join the coalition? Right? What's in it for other parties to join the coalition? What's the most important thing that makes you want to join the president? In Benin and Malawi, most people say cabinet positions. And that's the most common answer anywhere we do the survey, right, generally. Paul gave you an example earlier of a country in which it's not true. But in general, we find that the number one most popular answer is cabinet positions. We join because we want to be in the cabinet. But what's interesting here is the second answer given in the two countries. In Benin, the most popular second answer is that we join the coalition because we want to secure important posts in the legislature. So we want to be able to control things like the speaker, the heads of committees. That's not even on the radar when it comes to Malawi. MPs in Malawi don't see that as an incentive at all. And the reason we've already explained, it's because in the Malawian case, the president has so much legislative power that there's no point in being able to control the position of the speaker or the position of committees because those are undermined by the power of the president. Whereas in the case of Benin, those positions are really important. They matter because the parliament is significantly stronger and so controlling those positions allows you to control the parliamentary agenda. Similarly, if you look at Malawi, you can see that the most favoured second option was to secure favourable treatment by the president. Favourable treatment means that the president helps you to secure funding for the next election campaign. The president helps people within your party to be able to um, become heads of parastatals. He gives you a range of benefits that come from being the friend of the president. And it's interesting that in the Malawi case, most of our MPs say that's one of the reasons we join. 
And the reason for that, again, is that they are recognizing that this is an all-powerful president who can give them those kinds of benefits. In Benin, that's not an issue. And one of the reasons, well, it's an issue, but it's a less important issue. And one of the reasons is that the powers of the president in Benin to actually deliver those kinds of goods, those kinds of benefits to party members, is significantly weaker. We ask this question another way to see if we get slightly different responses. And the next way we ask the question is actually to say to the P MPs, so we asked all of our MPs in all of our countries, if you're the president, what's the most effective tool you have in order to actually form your coalition? What's the most effective strategy presidents can use when they want to bring a coalition together? What you'll see is that, again, cabinet posts come very, very high in the two cases. A majority of MPs in both cases say it's really about cabinet posts. Cabinet posts are the most important power the president has within a coalitional system. But the second answer, again, is very different. In the case of Malawi, the second highest answer is joint between budgetary influence and the exchange of favors. Our Malawian MPs are saying we join. The power of the president is what most important is the ability to give out small brown paper bags, right? The little things that happen, the side deals, the ability to get played into the next big business interest. These are the things that make us join the coalition. In Benin, they say something very different. They say it's all about budgetary control. The president's ability to control the budget's important. And that's because MPs in Benin have a history of being able to extract concessions from the president on the budget because of the weaker powers of the president within the legislature. And here are just two nice quotes that really illustrate this difference between the two countries, different attitudes of the two MPs. When it comes to Malawi, our MPs typically say this. They say, to the top leaders, President Malusi offered them positions in the cabinet, embassies, parastatals, while to ordinary MPs, he gave them money. Lots and lots of money. But our MPs in Benin say something different. They say, yes, the president uses both formal and informal powers. He uses his formal powers over the legislature. He uses occasionally the ability to use the exchange of favors, the informal mechanisms. But the formal means predominate. It's actually more important that he actually uses the rules of the game. And that's because the checks and balances on the president in Benin are so much stronger than they are in the case of Malawi. What does all of this mean for what people think about coalitional presidentialism? I said at the beginning that the MPs in Malawi are not that unlike MPs in Brazil. There's a similarity here in some of their attitudes. And you can see here, if you look at the right-hand column, presidents in Malawi do think that coalitional presidentialism has enhanced the quality of policy. 60% of them agree to that. They do think that it's increased political stability. 57% of them agree to that. But they're also very pessimistic about the impact of this form of government on things like accountability and the political parties. So if you look at the bottom five here, they think that 70% of MPs in Malawi say that coalitional presidentialism has made it harder for voters to assign responsibility for policy. So they're saying when you get coalitions, voters don't know who to hold accountable because they don't know who the policy came from. And so voters struggle to be able to punish people for policies or reward them at election time. 
They say 75% of MPs in Malawi think that pres coalitional presidentialism has reduced accountability in Parliament. They think it's made it harder for the opposition to hold the president to account, and so it's led to weaker scrutiny within the legislature. And when it comes to democracy, as Paul said, they're very critical. They think only 45% of them think it's enhanced democracy. Actually, a majority of our MPs in Malawi think that presidential coalitionism, so coalitional presidentialism, is undermining democracy. What about Benin? Well, one of the interesting things is that we actually see a significant difference here. Because of everything I've been saying about the situation in Benin being very different, our MPs in Benin are much more positive. They think coalitional presidentialism is a great thing. Take a look at the representation of diverse social interests. Our MPs in Benin, 87% of them think that coalitional presidentialism has helped the representation of social interests within Parliament. In other words, it's helped represent more minority groups, a broader distribution of the total population. 83% of them think it's increased political stability. 70% of them think it's enhanced the quality of policy. So these MPs are significantly more positive about the impact of coalitional presidentialism. And one thing that says to us, and it would be interesting to think about this with you about what this says about popular attitudes in Brazil, is that presidents who are significantly weaker when it comes to the legislature tend to see parliaments who are much more positive about coalitional presidentialism. What they're saying is we like the model because it gives us stability, but the president isn't so powerful he can dominate, so we actually still have accountability. This seems to be a balance that seems to go down much better with MPs than, for example, in the case of Malawi, where the president has similar powers to the president here in Brazil. So finally, what are the conclusions? Well, I think that leaders in Africa, perhaps surprisingly, use the toolbox in similar ways that they do here in Latin America and in post-communist Europe, the talk by Professor Chastain. When we see one tool being less effective, in this case we were talking about variations in the legislative powers of the president and the partisan powers of the president, when they're less effective we see presidents using other tools, overcompensating, for example, when it comes to appointments to the cabinet. What this means, and I find this very interesting being an Africanist because there's always a temptation for people in Africa to homogenize the continent, to suggest that African countries are the same, including, you'll remember, some American uh, political leaders who think that Africa is actually a country, that actually there's real variation here. We see countries in which different combinations of tools are used by presidents, and that means that executive legislations are very, very different. And that's not just a sort of semantic, you know, academic point. It has real-world interest and real-world importance. Because what we find is that that variation actually matters to our MPs in terms of the quality of policy, the quality of debate. And we haven't talked about it so much today, but the impact of coalitions on democratization. Thank you very much.